So this morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you've been with us again, we've been walking through the marks of a healthy church, the marks of a biblical church. We've talked about the importance of preaching, expositional preaching. And we talked about the importance of sound doctrine and how from Genesis to Revelation it gives us clarity upon the things that we hold true to. And those things brought us to a place of realizing what is biblical conversion? What does it mean to truly be converted? What does it mean to be born again and how that impacts our evangelism? And then last week we came to talking about what does it mean to be a member of the church? What does church membership even look like? And This morning, we come to another issue that is some way breathed out or continuing that line of thought, the issue of church discipline. I'm assuming that most of us, when we hear the word discipline, most of us think of something painful, undesirable. But my hope and prayer is that you see, as you heard in Matthew 18, when Mark read earlier, but here in 1 Corinthians 5, that there is another perspective, a biblical perspective, that it says it's actually for our good. And it's motivated, Hebrews 12 says, by love. So I think we might rightly ask this morning, well, what what do you even mean when you talk about church discipline? What is that? Well, church discipline, it's the process of correcting sinful behaviors among members of a local body of the church for the purpose of this, of restoring the individual, protecting the local church, warning the lost world, and bringing glory to Christ. In fact, it might surprise you this morning that we've already been practicing church discipline. In fact, every week when you come and hear the Word of God and the Spirit convicts you, you're experiencing an act of discipline. Where you hear that and you're like, man, my life's not in conformity to that. Or, man, sometimes you feel like, man, that sermon was just for me. Or, man, that you just felt like the Holy Spirit. It may not have been the subject the sermon was on, but the Spirit was just convicting you. And pointing out sinful thoughts and desires and actions and motives, you're experiencing discipline. Or consider each week during our service when we have a specific time of confessing our sins. It's an act of the entire church being disciplined. Like we're all thinking through like, yeah, man, I'm guilty of that. Or who do I need to get right with? Or maybe who's, for, who's, who's hurt me that I need right to forgive? Like you, you're wrestling with those things this morning. It's an act of discipline of the church. And then there are moments that, become a little more specific. Maybe it happens in your Sunday school class, but one of the reasons why we've passionately pursued community groups or or some type of discipleship on Sunday nights, because we want to have an intentional time where you sit down in a room with others, right? Men with men, women with women, and you have a time of just, hey, is there anything in your life that you need to confess or share that I can be praying or hold you accountable? It's an act of church discipline. So I want to realize that in varying degrees for some time, the church has already been practicing church discipline. But there are moments when despite our efforts to confront one another, people refuse to repent. And so as Mark read in Matthew 18, Jesus says, call two or three others. And if they don't listen to them, then ultimately you bring it to the church. And if they don't bring it, listen to the church, then Jesus says, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. If you want maybe more on like how does church discipline look, well, actually almost two years ago to the date, February 12, 2021, When we were preaching through Matthew, we came to Matthew 18. So you can find that on our website or podcast. And in some ways, today's text picks up on that moment of where the church is called to act and how they are to respond to discipline this individual. We might ask, why? What is the focus? What is the intent? And my hope is this, that you see that ultimately church discipline is motivated by love. It's motivated by love. 
Again, love for the individual, love for the church, love for the lost world, and love for the name of Christ. So if you would, turn with me now, if you haven't already, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul's going to instruct the church some on how to discipline, but that's small. The main focus that I want us to see today that Paul is answering is, why should we discipline? And here's our first truth. Church discipline is motivated by love for the individual. Church discipline is motivated by love for the individual. Here now, verses 1 through 5 of God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant? Ought you not rather to mourn? And let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In the opening five verses, Paul reveals the problem. There's sexual immorality going on in the church. And the solution is, he says, it's discipline. Now, notice what he says back in verse 1. It's actually reported, right? This isn't like something that's just happened and like, man, people are trying to, how do we figure out how to respond to this? This has happened in in Corinth, and Paul, who's not at Corinth, the word has traveled to him. People are talking. People know. This isn't something hidden. It's apparent. It's happening. It's outward. Well, what is that? That's what he says there. Again, for a man, verse 1, for a man has his father's wife. He says, what's happening here, this level of sexual morality? He said, it's not even tolerated among pagans. You see, this man was sleeping with his stepmother. It's a direct violation of Leviticus 18, verse 8. But Paul says, even when non-believers hear about that, they're like, that ain't right, y'all. Even the lost world knows, like, that ain't right. But instead of the church mourning over the sin of their brothers... They're arrogant. They're prideful. Maybe they're saying things like, hey, aren't we all sinners? That's what grace is for, after all. So what's the solution? Look what Paul says. Again in verse 2 again. Hear it again. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice again, like what he says in verse 1, and then again in verse 2, he talks about the fact that when this, when this person is among you, right? Then in verse 4, look what he says there, when you are assembled. Now this brings us back to last week, right? How do we know who the local church is? Well, it's this group of people that are physically gathering together and who are confessing this same confession. They're holding fast to it, and this individual apparently is not. But there's a clear identification like this one is among you. He's a part of this flock. Notice what Paul says. Look what he says there again. Look back to verse 4. When you are assembled. Verse 5. Look what he says. You are. Right? I mean, if Paul was writing to us, again, it's second person plural. What he's saying is, hey, when y'all get together, when y'all get together as a church, y'all need to act. That's what he's saying. It's, like, it's not just like, hey, this is the job of the pastors, or hey, the deacons should handle this, or hey, this is a work of, of like some committee in the church. No, this is the work of the entire church body. And the church, look, he says, verse 3, he's definitive. The church is pronouncing judgment. Further, he gets further clarity to that. Look at verse 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those 
inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. GBC, I hope from this word today, you are facing the reality that it is a myth to say that a loving and forgiving church would never discipline anyone. That's a myth. Paul is showing us clearly. You heard it when Mark read from Matthew 18. Jesus instructed it. And I could show you ample other places in the Scripture where this is called to act. But we might ask, how do they purge the evil person from among you? He says there in verse 13. And what does it even mean, that statement? Look at verse 5. You are to deliver, or penny translation, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. It seems to be echoing Jesus' words in Matthew 18 when he says, you are to treat them as a pagan or as a tax collector. In other words, treat this person as if they no longer belong to the covenant community. Why? Because that's the way they're acting. Again, all this is hard. It's hard, but we cannot lose sight of its purpose. What is God's intended end for church discipline? Look what he says, verse 5. Why is, this, why is the church to live and act in this way? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, here's the reason, his spirit may be what, church? Saved in the day of the Lord. The aim of church discipline is redemption. The aim is restoration. It's not simply just to point at people, say, get it together or get out. It's the salvation of their soul. It might surprise you to know that our Constitution, for as far back as I could find, actually speaks about the church practicing church discipline. Our current Constitution reads this under the heading membership. Membership ceases upon church approval. By exclusion of habitual, notice that word right there. This is some ongoing practice, not like a one-time. This is like the practice. The habitual breach of the covenant and constitution, especially in the realms of morals, of doctrine, and of fellowship and brotherly love. Matthew 18, 15 to 17, shall be the guiding procedure in excluding a member for breach of the covenant and constitution. Right? The church, before you and I got here, I'm assuming the vast majority of us, right? And then... And church covenants and things prior to that, like these things were written there. I, I, I wonder, like, what if we went back 100? This church is 200 years and we went back and saw the church there and what they were doing. Might we think, man, what are they doing there? And might they, if they showed up from 200 years ago or 100 years ago and saw our church, might they wonder, what are you guys doing? I think we might ask, so what does this even mean to remove someone from the church, right? This is like, this is hard. It's been a discussion throughout church history, like exactly how do you apply this? But it seems to be that the individual is being removed from the membership of the church and that they're no longer permitted to partake at the Lord's table. Why is that? Well, think about why people are permitted to come to the table in the first place. It's because they publicly came, right? Usually through baptism or maybe they come from another church, but they're making that good confession. And the church is hearing that and saying, brother or sister, we hear your confession. We're seeing your life and it's the best of our ability. We're affirming you're one of us. But now, by habitual sin and refusal to repent, again, hear that context. This is ongoing refusal to repent. This is not just, oh, they sinned, they messed up. That's not what the context is. This is ongoing. There comes the point of which the church is warned and they're saying now, brother, sister, you've made that confession, but you're not holding fast to it. We can no longer continue to affirm that you appear to be one of us. 
Now, the truth is only God knows the heart. The same way, the only way he knows the heart when the person comes. We don't know truly, right? We're doing our best to see and hear. That person appears to understand the gospel. They appear to affirm the gospel. We may be seeing fruit already, but only God sees the heart. But again, the church in some ways is just acting, saying, hey, listen, brother, sister, this is us warning. This is a call to repent. So again, this is hard. Passages like this, or Jesus' words in Matthew 18, or church history, this practice has been, been going and going. I think that brings us, again, to the warning of that church discipline is for the love of the individual, but secondly, church discipline is motivated by love for the church. Look at this, verse 6 through 8. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul provides a serious warning to the church. Refusing to deal with the sin of others puts the entire church at risk. Paul uses an example from baking and says, listen, you know how a little leaven or a little yeast, like it it can impact all the dough. Again, this isn't the first moment of this in Scripture. Like if you rewind the text back to Joshua, in in the book of Joshua, right? Uh, Joshua there, as he takes over from Moses and they're going to the promised land, they've just defeated Jericho and and God said, hey, listen, everything there is to be devoted to destruction. And soon after, they go to this little place named Ai or I, and, and they go up there and it's a smaller place. It's less defended. They don't think they need near as many people. And they go up there, and 36 brothers get killed in that war. And they are left running back. And Joshua goes, and he tears his clothes, and he falls down before the Lord. And he's like, Lord, what happened? And the Lord says, there's sin in the camp. Someone's directly violated the instruction I gave you that everything was to be devoted to destruction. And so they begin to cast lots. And finally, this man by the name of Achan comes forward, and he just falls, and he says, listen, man, I took a robe of Shinar, a robe of Babylon, I took these 200 shekels of silver and this bar of gold. And the entire, the entire body of Israel rises up with stones. And he and his family are killed and all their stuff gone. It's a serious moment. And, but it's a reminder. Sin never just impacts us. It, it impacted his family, but also, listen, his sin impacted those 36 soldiers. And their families. Sin never just impacts us. So again, to practice church discipline, GBC, listen, it's not only loving for that individual who's sinning, it's loving for the rest of the entire church body. It's an act of protection, an act of defense for the body of Christ. But did you hear the glorious truth in the midst of this? Look at it again. Look, return back there. Look what he says. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Look at, listen, I love this statement. As you really are unleavened. Why? He says, listen, this is not your true identity. To be living a continual, habitual lifestyle of sin, it's not who you truly are. Listen, if maybe today you're feeling convicted about something in your life, like today is just pointing it out, I would urge you and compel you for those who claim the name of Christ, the call is to come and repent. Say, God, I'm sorry I've gotten that wrong, Lord. God, forgive me of my sin and my rebellion. That's not who I am in you. Look what it says again. As you really are unleavened. Your true identity 
is not a life of sin, but a life of holiness. And how does this come to us? Look what he says. For Christ. Because of Christ. Because of that Passover lamb. He's been sacrificed. And the sacrifice of Christ is so powerful that it not only forgives you, it transforms you. I mean, that's what Paul says. I was talking to another preacher yesterday. We were there at League Basketball and we were just discussing sermons and texts. And he was talking about preaching for 2 Corinthians 5, 17. That if anyone is in Christ, he or she has become a new creation. Behold, the old is gone. That new has come. That's your identity. That's what he's saying. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 says, No one who goes on sinning, like living this lifestyle of sin, has ever seen him or known him. You see, like it's just a reminder, like this transformation is like the sin that you and I once loved and cherished, we now hate. We hate what we see. Like, I, 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 man, I just, like recently I feel like some things from my past or just moments even now, the Lord's just been calling those things up. And I'm like, God, I hate those things. Why did I ever do that? God, why is that my heart posture right now? Why do I feel that way? God, why am I, Lord, forgive me, cleanse me. That is not who you've called me to be. You see, the clearest piece of evidence, guys, of being born again, is not that you and I never sin. No, it's that when we do sin, we desire to cut it off. We don't want to continue in that. And the reason is because God now indwells us through the Holy Spirit and He's transforming us from the inside out. In fact, Paul here describes much of what is at the core of sin. Look what he says there again. Return to it. Look what he says. Verse 8, Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven. What is the old leaven? What is the old way of life? It is a leaven of malice and evil. The word malice indicates a hostility that's below the surface. There's this unfriendliness toward fellow believers. There's this growing inward hatred that begins to spew outward. It's often revealed through our scheming and planning. It's about a month ago, I was reading an article by Pastor Tim Chalise, and, and he said this, and it man, just stuck me. He says, gossip is not only a sin of mouth, but also a sin of the ears. It takes two, the one who speaks and the one who listens. It is as sinful to hear it without protest as to speak it without apology. Wow. Paul says this leaven is malicious and it's evil and that is not who we are in Christ. If that's convicting your soul this morning, you might ask, well, Blake, what's the remedy? Look what he says at the end of verse 8. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's honesty. Right? I mean, Jesus says in John 3, when he's talking to Nick at night, right? I mean, he has this moment. And he says that men and women love the darkness and they hate the light. And he says they won't come into the light. They won't come to Christ. Why? He says because they fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. I I don't don't know what you fear being exposed, but I'm just telling you, I just want to be truthful and upfront. It will be exposed, either in this life or the one to come. It's not hidden. 
And so, brothers and sisters, the sincerity and truth comes in acknowledging, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. Make me less like one of your servants. And the Father, in His gracious mercy, says, Come, my son or daughter. Bring the coat. Put the feet on the sandals. Put the ring back on the finger. For my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. That's the heart of God. Don't hide in your sin. Can I, can I tell you? I remember there was a time I was hung over in the balcony singing songs. People around me didn't know, but God Almighty knew. That's not the way. It's not the way. The way of darkness. It is broad and the gate is wide. And Jesus says, many there are that are on it. It's the road to hell. But the way to Christ, he says it's, it's narrow and it's hard because you're going to confess sin and acknowledge your sinful wrongdoing. And that gate is so narrow. But those who walk under that way find eternal life. Could I ask you, beloved, which path are you on? You may have the church and the people around you fooled, even your spouse or your parents fooled. But God sees and knows the heart. You see, this is why when it comes to sin and church discipline, the aim is to expose the sin. Why? Because sin is like cancer. It loves to hide. And it'll hide in my heart and it'll hide in yours. It's hiding. It's hiding this morning in our hearts. And the good news is this blessed word by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord uses it to reveal that EKG. So what maybe you can't see and notice outwardly, it reveals inwardly. Oh, I pray today that you would get right with Almighty God. I think it's important, again, as we think about this, this, this warning to the church and how the church is to act in love, to protect one another. We might say, well, how might we go to one another? Listen to what Paul says, Galatians 6.1. You can write it down, check it later. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Listen to this. I love this statement. Man, I want this to be more in my heart. In a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. It's to be done gently and with great humility. Could I ask you this question? I just, as I was studying this week, just this one commentator asked this question. And man, I just like it struck me this week. How do you respond when others sin against you or confront you in your sin? Do you blow up and then refuse to talk to them anymore? Or do you possibly say nothing and just build up resentment and bitterness in your heart? Man, it's convicting. Church, we are to go to one another in a spirit of gentleness. And we are to receive one another in a spirit of gentleness. Think about how, like, man, just your marriage could be transformed by that truth. Contemplate how that impacts your relationship with other family members or what about people in your job? What about people in this church? You see, I think this is why having deeper and more intentional relationship with one another fosters this. If we live lives of just rubbing shoulders with one another, going in and out of church, it's really hard for this to happen. 
Again, that's why we're just after intentional discipleship. And again, some of you, that may be happening in your Sunday school classes. But that's, that's why, GBC, I know at times, like I, again, as I prepare to step off the scene, I want you to hear and know our heart. The aim in trying to gather in groups was not to create cliques or to create any. I, the aim was for us to come together and expose our sin that others could pray for us and encourage us and hold us accountable. To love on one another, to fellowship on one, with one another. That's the aim. And brothers and sisters, I think the Bible from beginning to end is testifying that we all need this. We all. So again, the aim of church discipline is it's motivated by love for the individual. It's motivated by love for the church. But it's also motivated by love for the watching world. Listen to what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all mean the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul, apparently, right? Look what he says there. I wrote to you in my letter, verse 9. He's written a previous letter that we don't have, right? So although this is called 1 Corinthians, there's letters prior to that, right? At least one. And he told them not to associate with sexual immoral people and others. And so they've written back to Paul saying, Paul, we don't understand. What do you mean by that? Like, we live in Corinth. Corinth was one of the most ungodly places on the face of the earth. And they're like, how how can we continue to, to, like, we we can't even, like, we should have to leave the world if that's the case. And Paul says, like, hey, listen, guys, I, I wasn't talking about the lost. I was referring to those inside the church. Of course we expect the lost world to act like the lost. We're, we're to continue to love them and share the gospel with them. Now, I want to be really clear, again, especially maybe to some of our, our younger people, you can be friends with someone and not engage in their sinful lifestyle. I want to be clear on that. There can be a great temptation, right? All your buddies are drinking and partying and, like, man, it's just easier to go along with it. That's not what Paul's encouraging here. So I don't want that to be misconfused. Misconfused. I don't think that's the right word. I don't want that to be confused. I was misconfused. Hopefully you weren't. Anyway. Love you, Em. I know you heard that. If you were with us on Wednesday, we had... Anyway, back to the text. Man, one of the ways we minister to the world, right? One of the ways that we love the world is not letting them be deceived. And we deceive them when, when those who claim the name of Christ live the same way they do. We're deceiving them. Why? Because they are thinking and seeing that person who says, hey, I'm a, I'm a follower of Christ and yet I live exactly the same way you do. Then they must assume that if you're going to heaven and you live just like I do, then that must mean I'm good with God too. can hear the prophet Ezekiel say, there's going to be blood on your hands. There's going to be blood on your hands. It's no small thing, the way we live and the way we warn. We have a responsibility as God's children to live holy and godly lives in a godless age, Paul will say. This requires a different way of thinking, approaching discipline. Why? Because we ourselves and our culture, they they don't think about this as loving. 
Like our culture says, hey, live any way you want. Be whoever you want to be. Whoever you feel like being today, you could be that, right? It doesn't matter about your gender. doesn't matter about what your, your persuasion on sexuality. doesn't matter about your view of marriage. doesn't matter. Like, you just do you. That's our culture. And again, that's why, that's why we meet Sunday after Sunday and hear this blessed word. Because that culture is screaming at us. It's screaming at our kiddos. And that's why we've had to make some hard decisions on Wednesday nights. Why? Because I want River here to hear Mark Bonta preach this gospel to him. I know the world and the culture he lives in. And get every scholarship and be NBA All-Star tonight playing and still die and go to hell. I need him to hear this gospel. Your soul and my soul needs it, beloved. This is, we need this. Hebrews 12, 6. It reminds us that God disciplines those he loves. Did you hear that? Discipline is an act of love. Like, I mean, I, I don't know any parent here that doesn't love their kid and is not willing to discipline them, right? Like when they reach for that stove... Or like Pavey yesterday, we're like, we're going in, we're in the parking lot, right? We always sing the song, hold hands in a parking lot. Why? Because I want her to realize if you run behind that car and it doesn't see you, something bad's going to happen. And so I'm willing to discipline her, to correct her. Why? Because I love her. Not because I'm trying to chain her life. God disciplines those he loves. He punishes everyone except the son. Verse 6 there in Hebrews 12. Does this mean it'll be easy? No, no more than parenting a child is easy and disciplining. Look what he says in verse 11 of Hebrews 12. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. No discipline. No matter how small, it doesn't seem pleasant. It's not pleasant to the parent. It's not pleasant to the child. It's not pleasant to the teacher in the classroom. It's not pleasant to the student. It's not pleasant to the judge. It's not pleasant. I mean, like, it's just, those are hard things. But, man, they are right things. As long as they're motivated in love. As long as the truth is aimed at. And look, look, where's the end of this? Look what he says at the end of verse 11, Hebrews 12. Later on, often not in the moment, but later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Isn't that what we want? A harvest of righteousness? Don't we want all people everywhere who aren't right to get right? Don't we want our godly lives to point the lost and dying world to a glorious Savior? And one of those ways... It's through discipline, God says. So GPC, I hope and pray that you see that it's actually loving for the individual, it's loving for the church, and it's even loving to warn the lost world. And fourth and last, church discipline is motivated by love for Christ. Look what he says here as the text ends, verse 11 through 13. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging those outside, outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Listen to what he says there again. I want to draw your attention to it. What motivates this drastic step of judgment and not associating with someone they've likely prayed with, sang with, served beside, and on and on? Look what he says there, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name. They bear the name. I think we've too quickly forgotten that we bear the name. The name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. In fact, it was often derogatory, right? They were calling Christians, right? They were calling them Christians, this term, little Christ. 
it was an indication that they were followers of the Messiah, the Savior. And they were upholding this holy name. They were loving God and loving people. This was it. And Paul says that an ongoing, unrepentant lifestyle of sexual morality, greed, idolatry, slandering others, being a drunk, being a cheat. You can look at 1 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, on and on. Like, this isn't just like the list. There's like ample. Paul says these actions that are done and then confronted by the church and refuse to turn from them, they contradict the very name we claim to bear. It is no small thing to trample on the name of Christ. And so Paul says that they are to purge them from their midst in verse 13. Why? Again, the aim of this small act of judgment is to warn them of a greater and more severe judgment that is to come if they do not repent. I hope that you're beginning to see through the Scriptures that discipline is a compassionate warning to those who claim to bear the name of Christ. I was recently reading a book and it shared a great analogy about how we might think about church discipline. Consider that you had an American football player, right? And he goes out on a soccer field for the first time and immediately when the ball comes to him, he does what is natural to him, right? He reaches and grabs that ball and takes off running and all of a sudden the referee's blowing that whistle, 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 whistle. And he's like, what, what? Now the, the referee could easily walk over and say, hey, listen, you can't use your hands, just the feet, get on the game. Or the referee could sit down for a moment or someone could sit down and say, hey, brother, listen, you got to understand, like, it's not just simply that you can't use your hand, you have to use your feet. You have to understand what soccer is intended for. It is a game of artistry and skill that's shown by the fact that they don't use their hands, but they actually can control this ball and pass this ball and receive this ball all with their feet. It's not just that you've broken a rule. You've broken a rule that defines the very purpose of the game. You see, church discipline likewise can be described in a way it feels like just blowing the whistle for everybody. Like, man, this, like, this feels like just a whistle-blowing, Pharisee-type church. Until we understand the bigger picture. The bigger picture of what we are after, that we are to show that the name of Christ is precious and the name of the one who has saved us and transformed us has revealed himself in and through us by the life that's been transformed. Therefore, when the whistle blows, and it will, it won't merely be about some legalistic rules, but instead it will point us all to rightly bear the name for the one who bore the name on the cross. It's the good news of the gospel. To the unbeliever this morning, Paul's emphatic. Listen to what he says again. Hear it from the Word of God. God judges those outside. I want to be clear with you. All roads don't lead home. The judgment of God is coming. But the good news is the same God who stands ready to judge you is also the God who stands ready to free you. And he does it in the sending of his son who dies in your place for your sin and my sin, our rebellion. And he dies on the cross, taking the judgment of God on our behalf. I want to compel you this day. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. First Corinthians 6 says that in light of this, we're washed We're sanctified and we are justified. We're declared innocent. We're filled with the Spirit. We're forgiven. We're washed of all of our sin. This is the hope, unbeliever. You do not have to carry that sin and that bondage anymore. For the child of God, we are saying inwardly, Amen, that's our testimony. It's not that I've got it all together here. Some church member like, oh man, you should be... No, we are saying every week we gather because we are in desperate need of this Savior. 
We continue to look at Him. Our eyes are fixed to Him. Because we realize maybe before what you realize, we're sinful and endure the judgment of God, yet God in His love sent His only begotten Son. And that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To the church, we've asked three questions at the end of each of these messages. One is, where have we been? As you heard earlier, our church constitution is the language of church discipline. You heard it in our church covenant. This has been much throughout the 18th and 19th century before us. The act of church discipline not being practiced has begun simply maybe over the last hundred years or less. Where are we now? I think the reminder is we're laboring to preach and to teach. Our leadership is trying to encourage these marks of healthy church. But the reminder is only the church may and must finally enforce discipline. It's to you, the body. I think then we might ask, well, where might we go? I think some things maybe for you might be just small steps. Maybe during the time of confession in our service, it becomes a little bit more real and personal. Maybe for others, you seek out more intentional discipleship relationships. Again, maybe that's with others in your Sunday school class of having more intentional conversation about your life and their life. Of pursuing that through community groups on Sunday nights. Maybe we might ask, well, Blake, how in the world will we ever know if we were ever ready for something like this? And I think the answer to that probably is that when a situation arises that the majority of the church body would say, you know what? That person who's professing to follow Christ is continuing in unrepentant sin and no longer living like one of us. And despite our warnings and our callings, they're continuing. But again, that's a moment in which the church as a majority has to look and see these things. I hope and pray that you've seen that the aim of church discipline maybe today is to soften your heart some toward it. If I was being really transparent, but I heard this 10 years ago, I'd be like, dude, that's crazy, bro. That's crazy. That's a good way to kill a church. And I'm fearful at times that we think not following God's word is a way to build it. Church discipline, church, is not vengeful, but redemptive. It's not tyranny, but love. In light of the passage this morning and the hardness of it, We've chosen to sing a song that would be an encouragement to our souls. The hope that He will hold me fast. And today is hearing this text. Maybe you're aware, man, Blake, I I see my sin, but God in His mercy and grace just keeps drawing me back to repentance. Maybe it's just an encouragement to your soul today. Maybe there was a time in your life, man, when you were far away or in rebellion, but by God's grace and mercy He has brought you back. Just today's song, we're going to sing, He will hold me fast. Just this encouragement to our souls of what God is doing. And I pray for some of you. It's, it's time. He's bringing you back. He's brought you here. To hear this word and repent and get right with God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I'm aware that sermons like this are not a way to win friends and influence people. I'm no fool. And yet, Lord, the truth is, you have called us to be a holy bride. No more than anyone in a marriage covenant relationship today would desire for their spouse to be unfaithful to them. Lord, you long for us to be a faithful people unto you. 
And yet, God, we realize that each of us here is unfaithful. Each of us here has stepped away. There's no one without sin. And so, Lord, we realize that the ground is level. We are all in this room in desperate need of Christ and forgiveness. And so, Lord, I pray that in the midst of this word that we have seen our need of Christ more, our need of our fellow brothers and sisters to open up our lives to one another more, our need of greater posture, heart posture of humility toward one another. And Lord, I pray that you would just again, by the power of your spirit today, use your word. Thank you that it will never return void, as we sang earlier. And let your truth prevail over unbelief, Lord. Whatever has been of my own making or thoughts or desires or intentions in this message, Father, let those fall away. But whatever is truly of your word, O oh God, your word will stand forever. I pray, O oh God, that that word will be used to shape your people to the image of your Son. I pray this in your name, O oh Lord. Amen.